0: And now it's time to check in on the state of science.
1: This is KERN For WWNO, St. Louis
0: Public Radio K-Q-M-D Iowa News. Public Radio News. Local science stories of national significance. Over the past two decades, the federal government has funneled over $2 billion into salmon hatcheries in the Pacific Northwest. And although hatcheries in this region have been around for over two centuries, they've never really been able to replenish the wild salmon population as they were originally designed to do. Despite more salmon being released into the Pacific Ocean than ever, fewer salmon are surviving. And this has had a profound impact on native tribes who live along the Columbia River. They were promised access to fishing on their ancestral lands and now rely upon the troubled hatchery system. This is the focus of an investigation by ProPublica's local reporting network in partnership with Oregon Public Broadcasting. Joining me now to talk about their reporting... It's Tony Schick, investigative and data reporter with Oregon Public Broadcasting's Science and Environmental Unit, and Irina Huang, data reporter for ProPublica based in Atlanta. Tony and Irina, welcome to Science Friday. Thanks so much for being here. thank you so much for having us.
1: It's great to be here.
0: So Tony, I'll start with you and just ask how exactly we got here. When and why were salmon hatcheries developed in the Pacific Northwest to, to start with?
2: The hatchery idea started back in the late, 1800s, when salmon were first getting depleted, Spencer Baird, who was a fisheries scientist and the kind of the founder of NOAA fisheries as it is today, had this idea that, well, we could hatch fish in huge numbers and release them into the rivers, and that would kind of bypass our need to limit our fishing or regulate it in any way. The early hatcheries didn't really have any evidence that they were successful in that. And then The the idea of hatcheries kind of faded away in the Depression era, and then after World War II, when it was time to industrialize the Columbia River and the Snake River system, then proponents of that needed some way to offset the damage to salmon runs, and hatcheries were the only idea that they had or the only solution they had, then that is when the proliferation of hatcheries really started. That system is largely in place today.
0: Irina, you combed through hundreds of public records from these salmon hatcheries. Explain to us how big this problem is, how many salmon released into the ocean actually survive.
1: So to get to that answer, first, I just want to establish that there's tons of information out there. Hatcheries and federal agencies are employing highly trained fish biologists who put out these reports and management plans that are like tens or even hundreds of pages long. Using that data, we did an analysis. We reported trends in survival over the past decade or so. And because salmon runs can vary significantly from year to year, the the number of adult salmon that are migrating back, we wanted to see how good hatchery salmon survival has been, but also how bad it's been. And we found that in the best case, only two out of eight vulnerable populations in the Columbia River Basin exceeded a 4% survival rate. And that's a rate that a federal agency in the 2000s established as necessary for a population to recover. And in contrast, though, the most recent years of complete data for fish released between 2014 to 2018 showed that none of the eight populations exceeded the 8% survival. One was really dismal. It was as low as 0.5%. And I also just want to add that this is consistent with federal estimates. As of 2020, all hatcheries in the Columbia River Basin area were producing nearly 150 million juvenile fish but they were seeing only about 1.5 million return to freshwater And you know that 1.5 million that's about a one percent return rate. That's been estimated to be less than 10 percent of historical runs. Estimates are that in the mid1800s there were anywhere between five to 16 million adult salmon coming back and we are clearly nowhere near that.
0: That is a big a big change. So what do we know about why? so few salmon are returning. I mean, what is it about salmon who started their life in hatcheries that that makes them less likely to survive?
1: (laughs) You know, like any conversation with a bunch of scientists, I think it boils down to, it depends. But there was a fair bit of consensus in this case. The problem though is that the ocean is where most attrition happens. And it turns out that we really can't know a whole lot about what exactly happens to fish in the ocean. And it's not only that. One NOAA scientist told me, quote, the ocean's been pretty weird, end quote. In recent years, there's something called the blob. That's a capital T, capital B that scientists have been keeping an eye on. It's a mass of warm water. It's linked to changes in the climate and ocean ecosystem. Marine heat waves have been occurring more frequently, and it is known that warm waters are bad for certain species of salmon. And so, yeah, it's, it's really complicated, but there are some clues. I came across a 2016 paper that showed that the hatchery environment, you know, this artificial environment we've created, is really shaping salmon at a genetic level. Crowding them into tanks means that hatchery salmon genes are changing. Certain genes, like those involved in wound repair, immunity, and metabolism are actually more active, but these genes aren't necessarily the traits that wild salmon need to survive in a changing environment.
0: Tony, another factor that we mentioned at the top is that there are many indigenous people who live along the Columbia River whose culture and livelihoods depend on these salmon hatcheries. What can you tell us about this and how these indigenous communities came to be so involved in the salmon hatchery business?
2: It wasn't always that way. In fact, the early efforts at hatcheries, tribes were largely shut out of that, even though they have, you know, depended on salmon and coexisted with salmon for thousands of years, and it wasn't until tribes fought through legal battles to establish their role as co-managers of the river and started uh, getting federal funding to run their own hatcheries that they started to take, take a more active role in these hatcheries and have used these hatcheries as a way to try and, and, and rebuild some of these runs. The, the tribes see this as kind of their only tool for putting fish back in the rivers.
0: But that's what makes this so complicated of of course is it may be their only tool but it's a tool that it seems isn't working. In your research, is there any way to fix this?
2: That is what makes it this kind of conundrum. And there are indications that this can be done better and in fact tribes have been at the forefront of pushing for that. They've been rearing fish in in different ways to try and preserve more of that wildness instead of you know concrete pens they will use ponds more natural environments to try and acclimate these fish to the rivers even these better ways of rearing fish are not a panacea the complicating factors harming wild fish need to be addressed if you're going to recover salmon populations.
0: It's quite a piece of reporting and a very important story for the region. I'd like to thank Tony Schick, investigative and data reporter in Oregon Public Broadcasting's Science and Environmental Unit, and Irina Huang, a data reporter for ProPublica based in Atlanta. Thank you both so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. And if you'd like to read Tony and Irina's full story, go to sciencefriday.com slash salmon.